Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the finalists of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is Liz Levine, and she's going to introduce herself. Uh, my name is Liz Levine. I'm the author of Nobody Ever Talks About Anything But The End. And when I'm not telling stories on paper, I'm telling stories on screens. During this season of the podcast, I've been asking the finalists about the characters that they identify with in books, novels, stories, and even poetry. This has turned into one of my favorite questions to ask because every answer is different. And as a nonfiction writer, Liz's answer resonated with me. Here's what she had to say about this question. It could be a character from any novel. I'd stick with being myself in my own, not for the reason that I only read my own work, but because creative nonfiction is really a space that I live and breathe. And I, you can't make this stuff up is how I feel about writing creative nonfiction. So that's a space that I live in quite consistently more than a fantasized world. Nobody Ever Talks About Anything But The End is a finalist for the 2021 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize. Liz starts our episode with a reading from the book. The Easter Bunny. I'm an evidence-based creature at this, the ripe old age of six. I'm the first of my friends to stop believing in the Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, and the Tooth Fairy. And by the time I'm eight, I'm already over the Loch Ness Monster and unicorns. I pride myself on this. I'm 10 when I stop believing in my sister for the first time. My parents have been divorced for four years and are continuously working with each other and all four kids to make this as good as possible. My sister Tamara, age seven, now is working against the whole plan. Tamara tells my mother stories about my father's dating life. She tells my father's stories about my mother's dating life. They all stem from a grain of truth, but to my already attentive ears, they sound like lies. I'm 13 when the high school principal pulls me into her office to ask if my father is touching me and where. He isn't. And so this question is like being asked when the aliens landed or when I last saw the Easter Bunny. I sit stunned in front of her, mortified. It turns out Tamara has told her this, not because it is true, but in her words, because I wanted to see what would happen. As the years go by, the illness gets worse and to my eyes, increasingly obvious. Tamara makes plans with friends we never see, and in this era before Facebook, we can't even confirm that they exist. There is always a boyfriend or three that we never meet and an event that she is going to that doesn't seem to be actually happening. I'm 22 and driving home to spend Christmas with the family. By this point, Tamara has become obsessed with gift giving. Our gifts are complex baskets filled with myriad things that reflect her understanding of us. This year I got everything from movie tickets to cool pens and a small black and white ceramic cookie jar with the word shrooms tiled on the front of it. I guess this is my university undergrad reputation. I'm 29 when I fly home to Toronto and learn that Tamara has shaved her head and is telling the whole family that she's dying of cancer. Evidence-based creature that I am, I instantly disbelieve it. Mere blocks away, Judson is actually dying of cancer so I know what it looks like. And Tamara, she still has her eyebrows and eyelashes. 
I don't know yet that Tamara's disease gives her a rational sense of responsibility for any tragedy that she's heard about. I don't connect her lie to my experience yet. So I lose any flicker of remaining belief I might have in unicorns, leprechauns, and magic. And my brother and I decide to take very practical action. We scream at my parents. We try a family intervention. We try and connect with her friends and nothing works. I'm 31 when Lex, the lawyer in Politico who counts every black mark as a failure and every success as a resume builder is given a foster child for Christmas. The small child's name is Maluki and he lives in a little village somewhere in Africa. My sister has covered his expenses for a year and this promises to bring Maluki and his village a clean well for drinking water and some basic tools for education. It's almost three months past Christmas when my brother's phone rings. It's a representative from Foster Parents Plan Canada. None of Maluki's bills have been paid. There's no fresh water in his village and he is still starving to death. Lex is officially a delinquent foster dad. Apologetic and mortified beyond belief, my brother hangs up and calls Tamara. Tamara is instantly apologetic. There must be some confusion here. They have my credit card. I'll call and sort it out. You don't need to worry about it. It's late summer when Lex's phone rings again with her representative from Foster Parents Plan Canada on the other line. Maluki is being taken away from my brother. He has failed as a parent and he hasn't even had his own children yet. Maluki will be given to a set of parents that can handle their responsibility and prioritize saving the lives of children. My brother is crushed. Tomorrow's conversations are getting stranger. Now in the modern world of social networks, we can see her friends online and watch their exchanges. She still seems to have friends that don't exist and makes plans that never happen. She talks obsessively about a man named Scott Willis. Willis is a world traveler, a well-educated, handsome man living somewhere in Denmark with a name like an American spy. And he loves her and they are best friends and he will fly across the world for her if she needs it. And Lex and I believe in him about as much as we do in the Easter Bunny. In these last two years, Tamara's disease gets so bad that it finally gets named, psychotic with paranoid delusions. Her conversations go from secret meetings with the president and her email being tracked all the way to tinfoil hats and alien invasions. Life becomes a mess of psych wards and doctors and pills and medication. And then she jumps from her 29th floor balcony to her death. Lex and I manage the family through the funeral. He gives the eulogy. And as soon as the service is over, we sneak away out a side door for a cigarette. I'm just absorbing the quiet and trying to wrap my head around all of this before I have to go hug a thousand strangers. We are standing quietly, hidden around the side of the funeral home when a young man comes towards us. He's well-dressed and as he extends his hand, I hear the hint of an accent, like someone who's been living somewhere else for a while. I flew in from Copenhagen, he tells us. My name is Scott Willis. And with that, Lex and I have met the Easter Bunny, and I start to believe in magic again. Maybe maybe this is a silly place to start, but I would love to hear a little bit about the title for the book and how you came up with the title. I came up with the title for the book because of what the year and a half after... Tamara's death, my sister's death looked like, and really connecting that back a decade or so to the year and a half after my friend Judson died, there becomes a recreation of truth, I think, 
when someone dies and that is so often led by how they died, which I think helps to frame and heroize a person instead of to really keep them as a human. And the conversation also, you know, was really around my mother and this idea that what she wanted so badly was sweet stories of my sister and funny moments and a way to kind of bring the happiness of having the healthy parts of Tamara present back into her life. But specifically because Tamara's death was so dramatic and so tragic, nobody ever talked about anything but the end. Yeah. I wanted to talk about the right, I think, I mean, for nonfiction writers and people who write memoir, we often write about the people who are closest to us, our family, our friends, uh, whether they like it or not, they become characters in our stories. And I, I, I wondered how that experience was for you to write about your family. And did you share your work with them as you were working on it? Or was that something you mailed the finished book to them and said, here it is? <laughs> well, the first story I wrote in the book was the Easter Bunny. And it was actually a standalone piece that ran in the walrus. And it ran because I went away with my father on holiday a few months after Tamara died to just spend a father-daughter bonding moment with him. And he pulled this piece out of my bag and just read it and was quite stunned. So my dialogue with him began almost before I began the book. And I shared every story that I churned out as I went with both him and my brother Lex. And they both play with some prevalence in the book itself, which was really nice to be able to share with them. I think that for my mother, there's not a want to have to relive some of the most painful moments in her life. She doesn't want to, and I don't want her to. So she has read many of the stories that have those sweet memories that she was looking for and kept many of them, but has never and probably should never read the book from cover to cover. And that came in our family with huge amounts of love and support. Present at the book launch and proud of me and congratulations on every social media platform that she can tackle. Um, but I think that's separate from reading or loving uh, the book. Yeah. Did you and so did you then you were just shared the parts that you thought she would be comfortable with like before it was published or did you kind of, you know, cut tear out all the pages that she shouldn't read and hand it to her. I handed her a story at a time as I wrote them. You know, the book came together in a very unique way. So by the time I actually sat down to write a book, I had a lot of these stories. I also had already written a project around Judson. So his brother, Josh, and his mom, Kathy, had already seen all the material related to him. It was a pretty open process and I'm lucky I come from a place that openness in all forms is encouraged. Yeah. Did you get feedback from people as you were like, I, some, one of the reasons people don't share their work is they don't want that outside influence to kind of impact their memories or their story. Cause it, well, it's your family's story. It's also very much your story. Uh, was that a concern for you as you were sharing the work or were people fairly good about that? 
wasn't a concern for me so much as it was an awareness um, because I tell stories in a medium where taking notes and hearing others is a fundamental part of the process. I think that you learn to be open and say, yes, hmm, great, wonderful idea. And then go home and decide how you really feel about all of those ideas. And I think that I was clear from the very beginning that this was a memoir, it was about my memory. And much of it is my memory very young and I don't expect it to be perfect. And there's even sort of a self-reflexive story in the book where I can't remember what day I'd flown home or what day I'd gone to her building and my mother was sort of adamant that she'd remembered. And so instead of writing a story that was with her correct facts, I wrote the story that was about my memory not being able to grab onto those correct facts. I wanted to be as transparent as possible that this is from memory. That was something I, I really admired a lot about the book was that transparency and that came across in your voice too. And it, as I, my partner has, uh, has mental illness. And as I read it, I really identified with that struggle of, you know, of what it's like to live with someone who you love so much, who's going through an enormous struggle and those challenges. And it, to some people, it might come across as insensitive, but if you've lived it, it just felt so honest and true to that experience. That's, a, that's amazing to hear. Cause I think that is, I am frank as a personality. It's part of who I am in all the facets of my life. And I was frank about this and mental illness is hard. And I think how lucky are we to be in a moment where you as a grown adult can reference your partner with mental illness and that can be normal. My partner has whatever illness they might have. And I grew up in both a home and an era where there was nothing wrong with her. And yet there so obviously is, and the illness is so deeply pervasive and it is frustrating. It is even more frustrating to not have anybody who can share and acknowledge that with you, that this is that big a thing. And uh, it's hard to get inside of and understand. It's not physical pain. I can't smuggle a joint over for you or give you some Advil or ask the nurse to come in. And so it becomes a very complicated thing to have to support and help. Not that all kinds of support aren't exhausting and challenging, but there's a lot of guesswork in this that doesn't come with a physical ailment that's more cleanly delineated in terms of a healing process. Yeah. And it was interesting because you paired your your sister's experience with mental illness with Judson's experience with cancer, which is a physical illness. And and just how those were you thinking of of pairing those two stories together as you were writing? Because you said you'd worked on a project about Judson before. Had you thought of how those t two stories could fit together or did that kind of happen later? It, I mean, I wrote sort of a McSweeney's type project around Judson, which of course, unless you are McSweeney's is an impossible thing to publish because it's very expensive. And I put it in a bottom drawer. It was one of the first things I'd ever kind of done on my own as a project that way. And I had no expectation of it evolving beyond my bottom drawer. 
and there it went. And then I wrote the Easter Bunny story after Tamara passed away. And then I sat down with my amazing lit agent, Hillary McMahon at Westwood. And she said, so where's the rest of the book? And I was like, on your desk in three months <laughs> I you know kind of ran home and began to pull together all the stories I had about Tamara and then you know there was a lot of absence of me in Tamara's life I mean I left home to go to university at 19 she was still 16 I missed a lot of years where I wasn't living in Toronto with them and the family and there was a lot of space so it was what what does one do with that space? And then it was, oh my gosh, I have this in a bottom drawer. And as soon as I pulled it out, it instantly struck me what a foil this was, that this was the other side of the coin. Uh, same too young, same sense of tragedy around it. Also someone super close to me, but a disease that was so labeled, so identified, and something that in the aftermath of the end, you come out of and have a very easy understanding, you can't cure cancer, I can't, this isn't my fault. I didn't give him the cancer and I have no ability to take cancer away. And that's not true with mental illness. So I just sort of felt in that moment, they belong together to help illustrate something maybe other people weren't understanding. Yeah. Something I loved about the book from the beginning was the structure, that it was organized alphabetically. And I would love to hear about how that that came about. I know there's a fancy name for an alphabetical structure, but it always escapes me. But uh, yeah, I would love to hear how that how you came up with that and why you decided that was the best way to organize the book. I don't know the name for a fancy alphabetical structure <laughs> either. <laughs> um, but... I think that a lot of it was driven by the style of writing that I do. Um, so I was influenced in a couple ways. I tend to tell short stories on paper as a strongest form of writing for me. I don't always love all of the details and I don't always care about them because I'm just striving for the emotional run of the story. And then I read an unbelievable book, which I obviously reference in my first short story um, by David Levitan called The Lover's Dictionary. And this is a dictionary that works very much like mine, organized alphabetically about his love. And sometimes it would be a one line thing under O for opera, I'll never take you there again. And sometimes it was a much denser story. And I just love the idea that out of it came all of these puzzle pieces. Some felt happy, some sad, some good and some bad, but they all were about love. And I really felt instantly that that was also true of loss. And I reference so often through the book that we laugh at the wrong moment and we cry at the wrong moment and it never sort of goes the way that you think grief will move through your body. It has a really unique process and it travels a different path every time and I like the idea that a structure that was non-linear and a bit disjointed could actually represent grief in a way that's sort of moving away from the convention of the stages of grief that have so long been talked about and moving towards the idea that it's messy and we all process it differently and 
these stages aren't really stages because they don't necessarily happen in that order and they don't necessarily happen once. And it's a little bit more of a roller coaster ride. And I felt these short bites that, as you know, range from dark and sad to things that have a laugh out loudness. I want people to read the book and laugh out loud and think, it's so inappropriate that I'm laughing right now because that's how we feel when we laugh at a funeral. So it's really about taking the audience on the same emotional ride as me. Yeah. I, I, it's something, the humor is something that's come up so often when I've talked to people about their books because it does, you know, I've talked to Bill Richardson about his writing and his writing often has this dark but humoristic quality to it. And I always think about... Um, uh, hello, I want to die. Please fix me. Is that I'm probably getting the title wrong, but she has a lot of dark humor in her book as well. And I've come to think like, you know, it's a very human quality to try and find joy and humor in dark moments because we need it. But it seems like there's something about it as like a writing tool as well. When we're writing these dark stories, we need light moments in them as well. Do, did you find that as you were writing that it was, it wasn't just about the self-care part of it, like you need to laugh, but it was also maybe the reader needs to laugh too. You know, it's interesting in writing these stories, I didn't spend a huge amount of time thinking about the reader's reading experience in that I sort of approach all storytelling from this very emotive, maybe almost performative place. So I say, if it made you cry on the page, it hurt me to write it. Uh, and if it made you laugh on the page, I laughed. And so often I write these stories in the moment after they happen. I write them on the notepad and my iPhone. So I walk out of whatever moment and I'm giggling and I'm also sad and I'm, and I just drive through the feeling of those things. I think humor is something that we need as humans to survive. I think what it's what allows us to grapple with this amazing and challenging experience that is life. And it's special. Laughter is like love. It's something that can keep you afloat in your darkest moments. So the laughter for me in the book comes from a very organic place more than it does sort of a aware construction of something that the audience might need. Yeah. Um, it was interesting when you were talking about the book and the title of the book and just how when people die, there's kind of this retelling. We retell people's lives differently. And it's interesting because as I was getting ready to talk to you, I was thinking of um, all the conversation around the Anthony Bourdain documentary. And I don't know if you've paid attention to that, but it was it was interesting in thinking about your book because there's been a lot of conversation about what's private and what's public and who has the right to tell whose story. And I wondered how you felt about that with your book, because you include some of the email exchanges that you and Tamara had. Um, were, did you struggle with how much to share and what was private and what was public? Yeah, I asked myself often in the process what was private and what was public. And again, approached it with more than anything else wanting transparency. So under the short story hard drive, I really tried to illustrate that struggle, that there is a video image on a drive that only I have seen and that only I will see. Um, 
because I think that should be private. But at the same time, mental health has been such an unspoken thing for so long, suicide even more so, that there is something of real value in people being ready to share those secrets um, and talk about it and make it something that shouldn't have shame or guilt or those ideas around it. I think what's easier for me is that I'm unknown. Tamara is unknown. We're not Anthony Bourdain, arguably one of the most famous faces in the world. And so I think for us, we retain all of these private things about our relationship with Tamara and our family, both good and great things, as well as probably dark and hard things. Anthony's life was given to the public. And so I feel that for his daughter and the people that loved him and shared a private life with him, so little was kept private that maybe that deserves to be. Again, I think every story is unique and can we find those places where we understand each other deeply. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think what you were saying, and it ties to another question I had for you, but is around these stories that we've, we've told and are telling about suicide and mental health. Cause there have, there's of course been books written about suicide and mental illness for, for decades and centuries, but it seems like the way we're telling those stories has shifted that we are being more transparent and we are being honest and maybe it's uncomfortable for people to hear those stories, but it's time for that conversation to shift. Were you thinking of where the book fit in conversation with other books that had been written on, on the topic? Uh, I was in many ways, you know, I think you were referring to Audrey, Audrey Perperny um, and her book earlier. So I know that a lot of people who struggle with mental health were really starting to tell their own stories which I think is vital. And I was very clear from the beginning that mine was no replacement um, for anything like that. I think that so often it is the healthy people who have highly functioning lives in other ways who could be the people to otherwise sweep this under the rug. There's a voice in there for me that hadn't spoken. I, I am okay. I am living through this. I have lived through this. I have all the, the things that a good life might be identified as needing to have. And yet, this hurts me as much as it hurts anybody. And so can we, you know, just take a moment and be honest about it? Well, yeah. yeah. My own lane within what I hope is a growing field of honest stories. Yeah. You uh, mentioned, too, that you tell stories for the screen and on screen. How did uh, that experience, did that impact how you write? Like, do you see things more scenically or do you see pacing different because you have that other experience of telling stories? I think that the other experience of telling stories has refined the craft. And I think we all come at stories differently. There are a lot of people who tell screen stories that are visual assets. And that's not me. I have trouble matching my socks some days. And um, we have, you know, a lot of people who write who come from a detailed narrative, sort of complex woven fabric, which also isn't me. You know, I've spent a lot of time working with actors. 
I've worked in all kinds of performance spaces, theater, film, television. And it, it is about chasing an emotional thread for me. It's about creating a feeling. Uh, and I think that that's what the book has managed to accomplish. I'm not a mental health expert. I'm not a public speaker on suicide. I can't tell you how to process loss or I can just show you the emotional ride that I went on. And I think that's something that I sort of can do in all sorts of mediums is just take your heart along with me for the ride. Thanks so much to Liz for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks to you, as always, for listening and subscribing to Writing the Coast. If you would like to hear more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, be sure to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. On our website, you'll find all the information about our shortlisted authors, as well as details about our gala and viewing party, which is coming up on September 25th. And at our gala, we'll be announcing the winners of the 2021 BC and Yukon Book Prizes, and you won't want to miss out on that. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Joseph Danderend, whose book of poetry, The East Side of It All, is a finalist for the 2021 Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.